Well, if you would open up your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, we're going to be in chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 9. As you open up your Bibles there, um, every one of you watching or listening, you have what's called a worldview. Now, a worldview is exactly what it sounds like. It is your view of the world. Now, I want to be clear on the front end. Whatever a worldview is, if you don't choose it, culture will choose a worldview for you. And at its core, a worldview answers three simple questions with clarity. Here's the first question worldview answers. Very simply, who is God? The answer to this is going to tell you what is true and what is real about this world. Because at the end of the day, God defines reality. It's also going to inform you on who or what is your authority. This is one of the most important questions that every human being can answer. Who is God? Question number two. Who is mankind? Who is mankind? Why am I here? Why was I made the way I am? What does God, my authority, the definer of reality, say about me and who I am? Question number three. How do God and man relate? Are there rules about how I can approach God? How do I hear from God? How do I speak to God? Who can even talk to God? Can anybody just get up and give God a high five? What are the rules? Question number three is how do God and man relate. And I want to give you actually three examples of how this flushes it out. The easiest one to do would be atheism. And here's the worldview of atheism. Number one, who is God? Atheism says there is no God out there, which means that each one of us are functionally little g gods. We determine what is true, what is real. We have authority over ourselves because there is nothing in said spiritual realm that can actually tell us what to do. Who is mankind? We are whoever we want to be. I am who I say I am. Because I am little g God and I have authority over my life and I get to define reality in my little sphere of influence. And then the third question is how do God and man relate? And the answer is simple. The atheist would say we are all alone. Most Christians function out of a dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical. For them, it's all materialistic. It's all physical. There is no someone up in the sky who you can talk to. That's all a delusion. You relate to God functionally by just simply relating to yourself because you are authority. That's the worldview of atheism. And you can see how you answer these simple questions determines how you answer so many other questions in life. Now, let's look at a second example. I'm going to look at the example of secularism. Now, before we answer the questions, I want to give you just fair warning. Uh, The vast majority of you watching or listening, you are going to have a heart pull to this worldview that is stronger than you would even realize. In fact, I would even say if you cannot articulate your worldview with clarity, by default, secularism will be your worldview because it is the culture of the day. Whatever culture you grew up in, it's called your heart culture. And your heart for the rest of your lives will be drawn to whatever that heart culture is. The heart culture of the West is secularism. And here's how they answer the questions. Who is God? Secularism says this. Culture is God. 
And whatever culture says is real, it is true, and it is now our authority. Who is mankind? Culture, God, says, I am whomever I want to be. Because culture puts that burden back on me and says, you determine who you are. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to the way this third question is answered in the secularism worldview. How do God and man relate? If I agree with and obey culture, God, then I am accepted by culture or God. Do you see how this works out? So what you don't want to be in our culture, which well, they would view it as God, as somebody who goes against the grain of culture because you're rejecting their functional God. And I think many of you have experienced this firsthand. You know what happens when you go against the grain of dominant culture. And I want to say this again. Secularism is our default heart culture. I want to particularly give a demographic here. If you're probably under 45 or 50 years old, you're somewhat connected to media or social media in any way. Secularism is going to be probably your default default uh, heart culture, and it is summoning you with power. Now, I want to give you an illustration of what this might look like. If you read the Old Testament and you're somewhat familiar with it, here's what you find. The Israelites come up and they occupy this nation, they called it Israel after themselves. But all around them are tribes and nations and countries, and they have a very different culture than the people of Israel that God is trying to establish. Their heart culture is pagan polytheism. And so this is actually what the people of Israel came out of in Egypt. And so everywhere they go, and you find this all throughout the Old Testament, their heart culture is not monotheistic worship of the one true God. It is pagan polytheism. So here's what you find. Everywhere they go, it's like generation after generation, it's like their hearts are just beckoned by pagan polytheism, and then they start moving slowly towards it. Now here's an interesting test that I'd love to go back in time and do. If you could give most Jews in most centuries before Christ a test, a doctrinal test, they would probably pass it. But the problem was not their mind and how their mind answered the cultural worldview questions. The problem was that their heart, because even though their mind had the right answers, their hearts were drawn to pagan polytheism. And this is what, this is what it's like with so many people who follow Christ. I could give you a doctrinal test and you could answer the questions, who is God, who is man, and how do the two relate? But because our hearts are being beckoned and pulled by secularism, there is a discrepancy between what we believe and how we live. This is at its core a worldview issue. All right, let's look at the third example, biblical Christianity. And here's what you're going to find. Biblical Christianity is going to answer these questions fundamentally different than any other worldview. Who is God? God is one. God is deeply relational. And God is holy. Who is mankind? I am, we are made in his image as a child is made in the image of a father, but we are broken by sin. At the end of the day, I am whoever God says I am. Because whoever God is, he is one, relational and holy. He creates reality. He determines reality. He communicates what is true. And I am, at the end of the day, whoever he says I am. And he says I'm made in his image, but he also says because of sin, I am broken. I am who he says I am. How do God and man relate? I relate to God 
either as a son through faith or as an enemy with no faith. Now, whether or not you understand it that way, that is the the vocabulary given by God's revelation of himself, the word of God, which is what determines reality. So every human on the planet, we have two options. I am either a son of God through faith in Jesus, or I'm an enemy of God through not placing my faith in Jesus. All right, open up your Bibles. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. Last week, the people are fresh out of Egypt. God is communicating to the people through Moses. The people have agreed to follow Yahweh. He has agreed to be their loving parent who will train them and shepherd them uh, as their father. And now God is going to bring unusual clarity to their worldview. He's going to bring clarity to these questions. Who is God? Who is man? How do the two relate? Because their entire worldview right now, their heart culture is pagan polytheism that they have lived under for 400 years in Egypt. Now here's how we're going to go about this. I want to ask you, would you open up your Bible, open on your app, your paper Bible, whatever you use. Um, None of the scriptures are going to be on the screen today. And so I'm going to read through, and we're going to read through verses 9 through 25. I'm going to explain a little bit as we go through there. At the end, we're actually going to look back into this text, and we're going to see how each one of these questions is answered. Who is God? Who is man? And how do man and God relate? So Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. This is intended to be ominous and scary and unforgettable. God is going to design an experience that will become a part of the history and narrative of the people of Israel. That's how petrifying and terrible the experience that God is orchestrating is going to be. Why is he doing this? Verse 9 goes on. Why is he coming in a thick cloud? That the people, that they may hear when I speak with you, Moses, and may also believe you forever. I mean, you could see why this would be a little bit shady. Some guy goes up into a mountain, says, I talked with God, comes back down, and they're like, well, Moses, why should we believe you? Well, here's two tablets. Well, how do we know you didn't just carve those in the 40 days that you were up there? So what God wants to do is establish Moses as the leader of Israel and his representative to the people forever. And he's going to do this, and he's basically going to say, hey, I'm going to create this event, and people are going to know that they know that they know that it's me. Then you're going to go up, and I'm going to use this experience to let everybody know every time you and I talk, they need to listen because you're the one that I'm communicating about. Verse 9 goes on, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Uh, This is a word of preparation. They're about to come into the proximity of Yahweh, and there's some preparations that they need to do because this is a serious event. Let them wash their garments, their ceremonial cleansings. There's different things they have to do and abstain from. And he says this, be ready for the third day. Be ready for the third day. Like he's giving them a couple days of preparation. Like whatever is about to happen is going to be a very big deal. So what happens on the third day? Verse 11 goes on. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you, verse 12 says, you shall set limits for the people all around. I don't know how they did this with guards or barricades or priests or something. And here's what he says. Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain 
shall be put to death. And this is a command given to Moses. I want you, Moses, to ensure anybody who gets too close, you're going to find it's animal or person, that they be killed immediately. Because here's what's going to happen. They, they are unclean. And God is holy. And there's this, there's this distance here. Here's what he says. But he shall not be stoned, but he shall be sh- stoned or shot. No hand shall touch him. He shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. Okay. There's obviously, this is going to be a big deal. Whatever this is. Like you go too close, you get killed. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, and the question you should be asking is, who's sounding the trumpet? We don't know. It seems to be maybe some divine trumpet. I'm not sure. They shall come up to the mountain, not on the mountain. They're going to come up to the edge of the mountain. They shall come up to the mountain. Based on the third day, you're going to hear a blast. The people are to get up. You go to the edge of the mountain. You don't touch the mountain. You stay back and you wait. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people. They washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Basically, I want you pure, consecrated, ceremonially clean. I want you to go there with your mind and your heart and your body ready to encounter God. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, it appears that the people of God are going to be awakened (laughs) by this experience. Imagine you're sleeping and here's what happens. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Good morning. (laughs) Like this is, I think this is epic. So uh, uh, about a year or two ago, my wife and I were driving on um, Bartlett Road. It was storming. There's a little bit of thunder and lightning. And so we're driving on the road. We're actually going to meet our community group. And about a hundred feet, maybe 50 to a hundred feet to my left, the loudest boom I think I've ever heard in my entire life strikes a tree. It was a bolt of lightning. And I'm not really proud of what happened next. So what happened next is I basically curled up into a fetal position, took my hands off the steering wheel, put my feet in the air, and my wife starts yelling at me, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, I didn't even know what to do. Like, it was just one of the most shocking events I've ever had. And I look over, and like, there's this tree, and it's burned. There's smoke coming up. And she's like, put your hands on the steering wheel and drive the car. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, that feels like the right thing to do. And for about the next hour, like, I was visibly shaken. Like, this was a, this was an event. Like, I have, I've heard lightning, but I've never had one strike so close to me. And so it wasn't too long ago, actually, this summer, I was with my nephew. We were climbing Mount Olympus, and, and, and it's just outside of Salt Lake City, and so there's this uh, cloud, this dark cloud comes in, and it starts to rain, and all that's going through my head is PTSD of this lightning strike event. I'm like, is this going to happen again? And so I just imagine, if you're like sitting next to this mountain, it's thunders, and it's lightnings, and it's trembling, and, and then look what happens. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp, Imagine they're all just waking up to meet God and and listen to this verbiage. They took their stand. It's almost like military language at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled 
greatly. We have earthquakes, thunder, lightning, fire, thick clouds, smoke. Like this is all of your worst nightmares bound up in one singular event. Verse 19, and as the sound of the trumpet, apparently the trumpet is still being played, whatever this trumpet is, and it gets louder and louder, Moses spoke, and I love this, God answered him in thunder. Uh, Whatever it was, it was clear, it was powerful, it was gut-wrenching, it was unforgettable. And then here's what verse 20 says, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. Where is Moses, by the way? Moses is at the bottom of the mountain. And then here's what it says. Verse 20. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Uh, Moses. I'm sorry, who, me? I'm sorry, what? Like, okay. This is different, by the way, than his previous encounters with God. This feels like 10x from what he normally would experience when he would talk with, with Yahweh. And Moses went up. Verse 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, this is where it gets even a little bit more intense. Go down, okay, (laughs) warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Uh, I want you to just consider what's being revealed right now. That for them, to look upon Yahweh, whatever deficiency there is in the human condition, fallen as it is, that when a fallen man looks or woman looks on the glory of God in its purity, the result is our inevitable and certain death. And God says, listen, they're going to be tempted to go up. And you need to go back down and say, do not go. Don't touch the edge of the mountain. Don't put a foot on this mountain. Do nothing. Because if you see me in my glory, you will certainly die. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So there was some kind of a barrier that Moses had set up so they wouldn't cross. And the Lord's like, yeah, I'm not sure they're going to pay attention to that. Verse 24, the Lord said to him, go down. And come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord. Catch this. Lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. All right, let's pull out for a minute. And let's just look at how this text answers each one of these three questions. Who is God? God is is one. Remember, they came from a pagan polytheistic culture where the gods could be seen and touched and worshipped. It was very palpable. It was very tangible. And now God is somewhat invisible at times, but he manifests himself through all of this thunder and lightning, etc. But he's one. He's not many. In fact, as God interfaces with Egypt's supposed gods, he just reveals them to be uh, non-existent. He obliterates through ten plagues every single one of their gods. And he's showing them that I am one. There actually is no other God besides me. There isn't a multiplicity of deities out there. I am it, and that is it. God is one. He also shows them that at its core, God is relational. 
Uh, the Egyptian gods were not relational. They were transactional. If you give us what we want, we will give you prosperity or we'll just let you live. And yet Yahweh is taking a completely different approach to the people. What Yahweh is saying is this, I want to be a father to you. I want to be a parent to you. Hence his illustration of the eagle and the eagle's uh, 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 little baby birds earlier in, in chapter 19. He's saying, I want to be a father who trains you, who loves you and takes care of you and teaches you. That's the kind of relationship I want. No false god, no Egyptian god would ever have this kind of relational disposition. This is mind shattering for the people of Israel. He actually says, I want you to be my treasure possession of everything in the entire earth. That's what I want. God is fundamentally a relational God. But number three, God is holy. Egypt's gods were vile and impure. And this word kind of evolves as the Old Testament moves on, but originally the word means completely different, set apart, other than. Uh, over time, as, as people got to know the nature of Yahweh, we learned that he is perfect. He is pure. There is no lack of goodness in him. Everything he does is right. And so this word holy became this term for all-powerful, totally righteous, perfect in all of his expressions, uh, flawless in every single way. And this is totally different than the, than the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt, you could go crush them. You could, you could melt them if they were made out of gold. You can burn them if they were made out of wood. And so here's what we find. God is setting himself against their worldview, and he's teaching them. And I want to just share with you something about worldviews. It doesn't matter who they are. If you have a friend or family member who is not a Christian, or they are likely steeped in secularism. Old worldviews don't die easy. And so here's what we have seen Yahweh do with the Israelites. He had to take them to the end of themselves and the end of this Egyptian worldview to show them in its utter and complete and total failure. And this is why they're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness, because God has to get Egypt out of them. And so here's what we find with our friends. Here's what we find with our family members. You'll notice that the biblical worldview is not natural to most people if they grew up in a secularist worldview. And here's how most people who don't grow up in a Christian home inevitably find their way to Jesus. God has to bring them to the end of their worldview and show them its utter frailty, weakness, and inability to make them right with himself. And so we watch our friends, we watch our family members, we watch as they resist the biblical worldview, the true worldview, and unfortunately, most people, if they don't grow up in the Christian worldview, are going to have to go through a process where God has to personally dismantle them and bring them to the end of themselves. It's gut-wrenching to watch. But we learn that this is the way God does it because this is what he has to do for them. This is what he does for the people of Israel. Question number two, who is mankind? We said that mankind is made in God's image but broken by sin. Uh, the image vocabulary is parental vocabulary. We see that the primary way that the follower of God relates to God is as a father, as a parent, because that's how God relationally wants us to relate with him primarily. We want you to catch this. There is something deficient in humanity such that they can get close but not really too close. 
You, you should be reading this and you should be noting that after Jesus, you relate to God very differently in terms of spatial proximity than the Israelites do. You should be noticing that there is quite a big difference. Okay, God, you want to be our parent, but then you threaten to kill us if we get too close. Like this feels a little bit off. And we're learning something really important, that there is a deficiency in them, that somehow if these people in their sin see a holy God, that there are obligations, they can't just live in it. Either God has to kill them or they just die because of being in the presence of the glory of God is is a body-breaking experience. Watch what happens in verse 12. He says, You shall set your limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Verse 21 The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Verse 24, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. This really actually reminds us of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is like the first temple, the first place where the presence of God dwelled. God and mankind worked, walked together, worked together in unity in the cool of the day. It was a beautiful experience. There was no sin in humanity that separated us from the presence of God. And the moment same sin came into the picture, what happened? God cast them out of the garden, put up an angel with a flaming sword, and access to God was denied. Why? It was an act of grace. Because if they approached a holy God in their impurity, they would have died. Who is mankind? Mankind is made in the image of God. We are created to be sons and daughters of the Most High God, but sin has broken us. Which is why this third piece that I want to share with you is so important. Question three, how do man and God relate? This is critical. I think as Christians, we take for granted the fact that we can go, we can pray to God anytime he wants, and we know with confidence that he is listening to every word we say. We know that as Christians, that when we sing together, even if our motives are a little bit imperfect, the blood of Christ covers us, and God hears our imperfect worship and loves it and receives it and is glorified by it. We take for granted that no matter where we're at, whether we're in our car, whether or not we're fighting with somebody, we're sitting in class, we're sitting at work, we're playing a basketball game, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we can stop at any moment, and the Lord hears our thoughts, and the moment we call out to him, he hears us immediately. The, 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 the kind of relationship that we have with God, we take for granted, and it's fair to say that before Jesus, what this group of Israelites is experiencing is, is pretty different. For the Israelites, can they just go up to God and give him a high five? No, even when God makes the temple, he creates parameters and boundaries. You can come close. I want to be in your midst, but you can't come too close. And after Jesus, apparently we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. So what happened? What is going on here? Uh, and I think this is, this is something that you need to be able to articulate to have a clear Christian worldview. How do God and man relate? There are three ingredients that each one of these ingredients have to be in place for you, anybody, to have access to God, to be able to approach God. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, these three ingredients have been applied to you, but we now need to be able to give vocabulary and words to these ingredients so that we can give them to those we mentor, to those who we disciple, to our children and to our grandchildren for generations to come. Here's the first ingredient. How do God and man approach only and ever through a mediator? Because of sin, you cannot approach God. And so Moses is like this prototype mediator. Now, was Moses like the best mediator in the entire world? Definitely not. 
Moses was still sinful and Moses still needed representation also. But Moses served as a shadow, as a type that would point to an even better mediator that was to come. Look back at verse 9. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. Verse 20, the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. The people needed representation because sinners need representation before a perfect, holy, righteous God. Moses is a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately be for us. Nobody on the planet goes to God on their own because all are sinners. Nobody. If you try to go to God and you try to use your good works as your mediation tool, God, listen to me because of how good I am, it will not work for anyone on the planet. There is only one way to get access to a holy God, and that is through a holy mediator, and his name is Jesus. This is why I have access to God, because I go through Jesus. Because the spirit of Christ dwells in me. The separation between God and I now because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ has been permanently removed and he mediates for me. Now here's the second ingredient. Number one, you need a mediator. Number two, you need blood. This is going to be a weird thought if you are coming from a primarily secularist or atheistic worldview. But there are cosmic laws of the universe that God works by, and it does not matter what culture you're in, what generation or century you're in, these laws are always and ever true because God never changes. And access to God, how we approach to God, the requirements are always and ever the same. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So culture may say sin, no big deal, but God says sin is such a violation that sin requires death. And so the only way that sin will ever be forgiven is through the shedding of blood. In American Western secularist culture, that does not even compute. It is a foreign concept. So when we tell people Jesus shed his blood for you, their thought is, why can't I just shed my own blood? Uh, why, why, do, why does this rule even apply? Why does God even require blood? C- can't God just say, uh, I'm not going to require it anymore. Everybody goes to heaven. No, actually, he can't do that because sin in the cosmic courts of God must be punished because God is holy. If you had a judge on this planet who just looked over a bunch of people, let them go, never punish them, you would call them an immoral judge. And yet humanity looks at God and says, we want you to do for all of humanity what we would actually turn on an earthly judge if they did the same thing. And so here's what we find in God's cosmic laws of this universe, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And I'll come back to a statement that, honestly, I think we say this every other week at Village, someone's going to pay for your sins with blood. And there are two options that God has given us. One is you, or the other is Jesus. And thank God that Jesus is not just our mediator, but he is also the blood that was shed for our sins in our behalf. Now, my friends, you can't shed your blood for me because sinful blood cannot pay the price for a sinful man. And in God's economy, the only blood that could ever be shed was the blood of God that would be effective to cover sin. And again, we're dealing with laws, spiritual laws that are bigger than American laws. They're bigger than cultural laws. These are cosmic laws that determine reality for everyone, no matter what generation they live in. And now you're starting to understand, well, why do you have to go through Jesus? Why is Jesus the only way? Because there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. Well, why did Jesus have to die for us? Because the forgiveness of sins in the cosmic economy of God requires the shedding of blood. 
Okay, well then, then why doesn't he just do it for everybody? Let me just show you. Here's the third ingredient. Faith. Faith enacts relationship. Faith, synonym trust, is fundamentally a relational act. God is not interested in simply transaction, but in relationship. And I think it's so fitting that the one requirement to have Jesus be your mediator and his shed blood be applied to you is an act of relational connection. It it, it is you coming before God and taking him at his word. And you saying, I believe I am who you say I am. I believe that you have made me in your image and sin has broken me. I believe who you say Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. I believe that your word says my sin must be punished. I believe that your word says that you have given me the opportunity to have Jesus be my substitute. No one else could be this in my place, but somehow Jesus can be, I I believe you. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I am taking your view of the world, your definition of reality, and I'm saying this, I trust you and I want relationship with you. And so would you forgive me so that we can be reconciled? I love that it is is the act of relational connection where God says, if you take that step toward me, Jesus will be your mediator and his blood will cover you. And he goes a step further. And this is where post the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, things are pretty different. Because now we get the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So God's presence is always with us. Yesterday, I went on a bike ride with with my son, and we were talking about how we talk to God. And I asked him, so what's the difference between talking to God in your mind or talking to God out loud with your words? And he says, well, one's using your mouth and the other's not. I'm like, well, thank you for that. Uh, I said, no, but like, does God like one better? And his response, I mean, he's seven. It was so simple, so straightforward. He's like, he hears them all the same. I'm like, that's right. Because the spirit dwells in you. And so when your spirit cries out to God, his spirit is already in you. You can be anywhere, anytime, and you have direct access to God because the spirit of God dwells in you. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit leaves the temple, rushes out, and fills the people. It's this amazing reality that when we take a relational step towards God, because God is one, holy, and relational, that he responds by providing us a mediator, shed blood, and the promise of relationship. There are three requirements that every single person must have if they're going to approach God. Number one is you need a mediator. Moses was the shadow. Number two, you need shed blood. And and just a couple chapters earlier, what did the Israelites do in Egypt? They sacrificed a lamb, and they put the blood of it over their doorposts. And this was a declaration of faith. It was a shadow of blood. They had a mediator, Moses, telling them what God wanted them to do. And and so in this moment, all these things come together and God's developing the worldview. This is how you relate to me. And I, I am personally so grateful that I get to live after Jesus because before Christ, all the way up until the death, resurrection, and ascension, you could not go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. You had to be distant just a little bit. Yes, God was in your midst, but now after the death, resurrection, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. I love this. All right, three so what's as we finish our message. Can you say with confidence that you have placed your faith in the blood of Jesus, your mediator. 
Um, you may be hearing all of this, and maybe you've been relying on your good works. Maybe you've been relying on your church attendance. Maybe you've been relying on your parents' faith. Have you personally made Jesus Christ your God and Savior? Have you trusted in him? Have you taken a relational step toward God to say, listen, I know my heart culture might be over here, but I want to be in relationship with you, and I believe what you say about me, about you, and truth, and reality, and I want to trust in Christ today. If that's a decision you want to make today, I just want to encourage you. Align your life with the biblical worldview because it, at the end of the day, is the only true worldview. And God is offering you sonship. The holy, righteous God is offering you full access through faith in Jesus. All right, Christian, I want to talk to you for a moment. Is your worldview aligned with God's word? So I'm going to give you one symptom to look for in your life. Willful sin reveals a crack in your worldview. Willful sin, and most of you are probably thinking, you know what, there's one, two, or three things that I willfully do on a regular basis that I know violate God's word. Here's what this does. It shows you that you and I are just like the Israelites. That we could take a doctrinal test and we could pass it, but our heart is being summoned and beckoned by secularism. And so when we find willful sin in our life, small or big, it's this indicator, it's this cue, something is off. Your brain might be aligned, but your heart is moving away. And what I love about the shed blood of Jesus is that it covers all of our failures and deficiencies. All the times I just, my heart runs back to secularism because it's my heart culture. The blood of Christ says, come back. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You have full access even in all of your brokenness. Third, spiritual leaders. Spiritual leader could be a grandparent, a parent, a children's ministry leader, a teacher. If you're a spiritual leader, I want to ask you this. Are those under your leadership able to articulate a biblical worldview, their worldview, the true worldview, with clarity? So this might be a really good message for you to take some notes on, to go back and listen to, and and be able to sit down with your grandchildren or your children or the people in your small group and say, you know, can we just take a moment? How you answer these three questions will shape your entire life. And we don't just want your mind to be aligned to them. We want your heart to be aligned to them. The mission that God gave us is to go make disciples. And part of making disciples is having them move from a false worldview to a biblical worldview, which again is an excruciating process, but one where life is found at the end of it. And so spiritual leaders, can you say that those under your leadership are able to articulate a biblical worldview with unusual clarity? And then after that, there's another step. After they can verbalize it and give vocabulary to it, are they able to see how their heart is beckoned by the culture even though their mind is giving the right answers? And this is part of what it means to come alongside of people younger in the faith And it's to help them know the truth, but also to see where their heart is being pulled away from the biblical worldview. Now, I can't think of a better time to come to communion. And so if you are in one of our home locations, uh, your host should have some elements. Host, this is a great time for you to go get those and hand them out to the people who are with you at your home. Um, But this is a moment where we get to come together and we get to remember that all of the requirements for access to God— 
are bound up in Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus' blood was shed in our behalf. Jesus has given us the very faith that we need to be able to access God and come to him on a relationship basis. Everything we need is actually bound up in him. And so communion is this really, really beautiful moment where we remember, where we remember that there is one true God we are made in his image and he has pursued us because he wants relationship with us. And nowhere is that more beautifully seen than in the cross of Jesus Christ where God legitimately so loved the world that he gave his only son that anybody who believes or has faith or places their trust or makes a relational uh, uh, emotion to God through faith, anybody can be saved and have eternal life. Anybody. That's unbelievable. And so we just take these moments and what I want to ask you to do is take some time and, and just thank God be filled with unbelievable gratitude because if Jesus had not done this, you would have no access to God. You're going to go home later today and you're going to talk to God throughout the day. You're going to open up his word. He's going to convict you of sin because his spirit is in you. All of this is only possible because of Jesus. Um, you, some of you look back on your old life and God has transformed you and he's making you into a new young person, a new student, a new man, a new woman, and the old you is like slowly dying away. If it was not for Jesus and what he did for you, the old you would be alive and active and you would today have to be bearing the repercussions of that old you all over your life. So when we think about communion, this is a great moment just to remember everything that we have ever needed to have full access to God has been given to us in in Jesus. And so we're going to have a moment. It's going to be about a minute of silence where we can just talk to God. We can thank him. Uh, We can confess. Some of you already, there's probably some discrepancy between your head and your heart and your worldview, and you're picking up on that. And you just need to bring that back to the cross. And and the word of God says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your sins are forgiven there as far as the east is from the west. And so we are reminded that all of that was given to us through the body of Christ, which was sacrificed in the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. Let's have a, a time of silence where we can just reflect on what God has given us through Jesus.